Welcome to Where I'm From, the podcast that proves no matter how far you go, you'll always keep a little piece of home with you. I'm Bill Meeks. This week, actor, writer, and cat handler Stephen Tobolowski joins me to talk about where he's from, Dallas, Texas. Tip your hat, y'all. We're heading to the Lone Star State. You might know Stephen Tobolowski as, well, He's been in just about everything, from Mississippi Burning, to Spaceballs, to NBC's Heroes, to more recent stints on shows like The Goldbergs. I think a lot of us first met him as Ned Ryerson in the classic film Groundhog Day. Now don't you tell me you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. (laughs) Ned! Ryerson! He's a credited co-writer on the surreal 80s Talking Heads movie, True Stories, set in the fictional town of Virgil, Texas. Today, though, we'll be hearing true stories about Dallas. Dallas is huge, both in landmass and in population. The city was originally built to support the train lines and quickly grew into an industrial center and a major inland port. Dallas is the largest contiguous arts district in the United States which I'm sure will come up in my conversation with Stephen today. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. A little challenged uh, technologically, but other- <laughs> otherwise I'm here. I'm here. At least you got the computer up. That's the hard part. Now I can t- take car- care of all the even harder stuff, all the switching and everything. My father is 100 years old. Oh, wow. And I just visited him in Dallas. And if you want to feel computer literate, just talk to dad about anything that has to do with computers and you'll feel like you're Steve Jobs. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because like I, I've heard that um teachers have a hard time with kids now because they've grown up like, you know, uh my generation was like the Commodore 64 generation, the IBM PC compatible generation, uh, where you had to get in there and type in the command line and everything. Kids today don't have that. So a lot of times they they're kind of as stuck um, technologically as some of the older generations I've heard. Yeah. When, when I was doing one day at a time, just recently, the Norman Lear version of it, we had some kids on that show mm-hmm. and they are so technically savvy during the scenes, they have their phones in their pockets. And, and, you know, when the, they feel the camera's not on them, they catch a shot and then Immediately, as soon as that take was over, they pull out and show the studio audience and start being co- contacting all their fans. <laughs> it was crazy. I, that that would put me in a f- flop sweat. I think is what they call it. <laughs> I've actually I I've done a little bit of extra work, and it, it's weird because they're always like no phones, no phones, but then everyone pulls their phones out between every take. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, right. What's exactly. the deal here? Exactly. That, Guess I'm just not allowed to take a selfie. That really worked when we were doing Deadwood. Mm-hmm. And the extras, you know, what is that, 1860 something? And then the extra would pull out, wearing full frontier garb, would pull out a cell phone and in the middle of the scene, <laughs> like be checking their mail. That was always good. And then later on, you'd find out through the plot that that was a time traveler the whole time. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> All right, Stephen. Well, uh, I brought you here today to talk a little bit about Dallas. Dallas is a huge city uh, with a lot of local businesses. Uh, When we were going back and forth, setting all this up, you mentioned uh, one of those businesses that you really had fond memories of, which was, uh, I believe it's Daughter, 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 Da
Doherty's Drugstore, yeah. And it has a ton of history in the area going back to 1929. I was digging in on research. I'm going to find out all about this. I was like, you know what? I have Stephen Toblowski on the show. Why don't I just ask him? He can probably give me a better idea. Now, you should explain to the audience because you kind of led the people on to think that we actually had some substantive discussion about Doherty's Drugstore. This is the first time I'm hearing you know, this is all your research. This is everything you've dug up on this. This is fascinating. Oh, really? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you said what list, you know, and I said, well, Doherty's Drugstore, mm-hmm. but the, that's the only thing we had was the name. You did all the research. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, credit where credit's due. <laughs> exactly. I'm awesome, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why don't you tell people a little bit about it beyond what I did on my yes. research? I mean, I have tax documents and stuff, but you have the emotional stuff, stuff. I have the emotional documents. So I went, my elementary school I went to was Jeff Davis Elementary School. Yes, it was named after mm-hmm. the president of the Confederacy. Ooh. Jefferson Davis Elementary School. Little awkward. Uh, kind of at Keystone Polk uh, Streets in Oak Cliff. And right across the street was Doherty's Drugstore, Ben Franklin's. They ended up putting a pizza in. It was the first time I ever heard of the word pizza. Hmm. But Doherty's Drugstore, we had a deal when we, I was there at, at Jeff Davis from first to fourth grade. So we walked to school back then. Even even as a first grader, we walked the mile to school in the morning and walked home. It parents just let their kids do this. And I, I was going to say uphill both ways, but it's Texas, so that wouldn't be, be a well flat both ways. It it had a major uphill and a downhill. A major uphill and oh, a okay. downhill. Either way you went. And so after school, from first grade on, I would cross the street sideways. Instead of going straight home, I would go over across the street to Doherty's Drugstore. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they had this policy to where kids could just pick the comic books you know, off of the mm-hmm. display. And they had all of them, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. the works. And yeah. go to the back of Doherty's, they had a little sitting area where people waited to get their prescriptions and sit down and read the comic books. And also, uh, maybe if you wanted to buy something, uh, Coke or something like that, you could buy a Coke and sit at the back of Doherty's drugstore. So they would treat it kind of like a li- a comic book library where you could just grab an issue, go yeah. read it and put it back. Don't have to pay the 15 cents. Just buy something to drink while you're there. Or 25 cents if it was the Batman super, you know, the, the big <laughs> Batman thing was yeah. 25 cents back then. And I think the comic. The mega digest. I think the regular uh, comic books back then were, were a dime. And I think the big mm-hmm. super ones were like 25 cents is what we're talking about. And yeah. uh, so I went. To, to Doherty's every day I could with all my friends. And then I had a moment in which Satan tapped my shoulder. And I, and I see that it, it, kids go through this kind of thing all the time. I thought, what if I stole something? Hmm. I wonder what that would be like. And they had uh, lifesavers for like 20, 25 cents. And, and I thought, I could just put this roll of lifesavers in my pocket and walk out of here and no one would know what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, I had the quarter, I had the quarter, but I wanted to see what it's like to steal something. So mm-hmm. get that rush. I stole the lifesavers, 
walked out and on the way mile home, walking home, I immediately was attacked by conscience mm. and thought, what the hell did you do? What are you doing? And I thought, maybe when I pass the creek, I'll just throw the lifesavers into the water. Mm. I'll just throw them into the water and, and just pretend like the whole thing never happened. Like not eat a lifesaver. Just I didn't want to eat a, a stolen lifesaver. Mm -hmm. Then I went home and I was really shaken. And my mother noticed it. And she came to me and said, Steppy Doors, which is what she called me. Steppy Doors, is there something wrong? And I told her, I said, Mom, I stole these lifesavers. And she looked at me just hard and very seriously. She says, sweetheart, you know that's wrong, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Well, you know what you have to do? No, ma'am. You have to go back to Doherty's drugstore and you have to take those lifesavers and give them back to the lady at the counter and tell her, you took these, it was wrong, you're sorry, and you'll never do it again. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, there's the solution. There's the solution to my problem. So I went back to Doherty's drugstore, and on the way, I passed the creek, I thought, throw them away, just throw the lifesavers away, don't talk to the lady at Doherty's drugstore, just throw the lifesavers away, it'll <laughs> all go away. And I came back, and I went up to the lady, and I put the lifesavers on the counter, and I said, excuse me, I just took these lifesavers earlier this afternoon from here, and I took them without paying it, and I want to return them, and I'm very sorry. And I was expecting absolution. Instead, mm -hmm. what happened was the woman looked at me, took the lifesavers, and said, you are banned forever from coming into this store. Wow. I never want to see your face here again. Leave now, never come back. And that was the end of me and Doherty's drugstore. And I learned about consequences. Mm -hmm. I learned uh, primarily at the very tender age, what, I was 10, about 10, about regret. And regret is something that sticks with you your entire life. I still have an ache in my soul over those damn lifesavers. <laughs> and I, I've never stolen anything again because of mm -hmm. it. But it was a very hard lesson, and it was the end of my days of reading Superman and Batman for free. I guess you're probably lucky that they weren't there either. They would have busted you before you even got out the door. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Circling back around to comic books, uh, so you said uh, you were big fans of like Superman and Batman. Who were some of your favorite like side characters in those books? Well, I was introduced to these magazines by the comic books by other friends that were totally into it. Mm -hmm. And so they all told me who was the cool character. Yeah. I went through a period where I absolutely loved Flash mm -hmm. and, and the fact that, that he could travel at such high speeds. Yeah, you know, that, mm -hmm. that was because I was a fast runner at the time and thought maybe I could be like the Flash. But, <laughs> it, you know, the, the first side character I always loved was, of course, uh, Robin. It, you know, you got to love Robin. And Absolutely. Uh, in terms of villains, I always, if you consider them a side character, I was always troubled by the Joker 
Uh, he was like a nightmare to me. He, so that was, mm. I consider, a very effective character. Justice League of America, I was very much puzzled by Wonder Woman and <laughs> her ability of her lasso of making you tell the truth. <laughs> now, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah, yeah. I think we're all, all of us that are married may be married to a Wonder Woman and they have that lasso. Makes you tell the truth. It's just that one like little side glance and, and you're like, okay, uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I I took your chocolate and I, you know, I didn't do the dishes. I'm sorry about that. We'll make it better. And, and I did not care for Perry White. Oh, really? I, I thought Perry White was a bore. Mm -hmm. but, but little did I know later in my life, the only character in any of the uh, comic book world I would ever play would probably be Perry White. You know, but that was it. You know, Perry White, I yeah. thought was a bore. I enjoyed the Bruce Wayne character of Batman, that he was so wealthy and yet at the same time had no satisfaction in life, despite his wealth. Mm -hmm. And and he was like the head of the opera, the head of the art museum, all these things he said, benefactor, but he had to be he had to do more. Yeah. So that impressed me about about the Bruce Wayne side of Batman. Well, I mean, I guess both Superman and Batman are really good actors too, right? Because like their their personas are about as different as you can get. You know, Bruce Wayne's like the playboy running around town getting drunk with all the supermodels and Clark Kent's the nerdy guy who works for the paper. And then they're both these really powerful, effective heroes in their secret lives where I, I think what appealed to me anyway as a kid was that it felt like, you know, we all have, something bigger kind of inside of us, you know? Yeah. And and one thing, all of us kids at the time, I remember from Doherty's is we all loved Batman the most. Why? Because he did not have superpowers. <laughs> mm -hmm. and we, we held it against the others that they had an advantage of superpower. Whereas Batman was, he had to do it all himself. You know, he had to mm -hmm. invent the Batmobile, which was a supercar, but it, wasn't yeah. gifted to him because he came from another planet. You know, and they made this joke in uh, the Justice League movie. The one superpower he kind of does have is he's super duper rich. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That's real power. Yeah. yeah, me or you probably couldn't build the Batmobile, or at least up to that standard. But he has millions of dollars laying around. Bruce yeah. Wayne will be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm personally, myself, a big fan of theater. I was a theater major. I met my wife through theater. And it seems like Dallas has not just a theater scene, but like a really thriving art scene. D did you do theater there? And was Dallas sort of a supportive environment for a young artist such as yourself? I would have to answer the last question. Yes, I think for, for someone like me, Dallas was very supportive. Uh, relatively speaking, we're talking about Texas. Mm -hmm. So relatively speaking, Dallas was a thriving theater community and that they had a couple equity theaters, certainly the dinner theaters like Granny's Dinner Theater. So there was a place when you graduated from college, you could actually go and get your equity card. They had another equity theater, Theater 3, which is where I went to get my equity card. And then they had the very famous, world famous, even Dallas Theater Center, which uh, Paul Baker's baby, and they did world famous productions there, but that was not an equity theater. Mm. But it was very supportive. Uh, people loved the arts in, in Dallas. So I would have to say, yes, 
supportive supportive of our efforts, but it 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 wasn't New York and it wasn't Chicago. Yeah. You, you know, we're not talking that supportive. We're talking single digits as the number of theaters they had there. What was uh, the first play you were ever in? Because I'm assuming you started on the stage, you know, not on TV and stuff. I actually started in the field. Hmm. The The first play I did was when I was, I think I was five or six years of age oh, wow. playing Hansel in Hansel and Gretel in <laughs> Keys Park. Summer See, they had summer productions sponsored by the parks because the parents wanted to get rid of the kids during the summer with, with the school. So that yeah. you sent them to these different parks. You could play handball or racket tennis or all these things. You could also do theater. And they, <laughs> had, uh, they had a theater contest and I played Hansel in the peewee division. They had peewee, midget, and junior. Those were the three divisions. Mm. So I was in the peewee division. And as Hansel, I had to kiss Marsha Housewright, which was a big deal when you're I was like six or so big deal. Oh yeah. Big deal. Kissing a girl, at, <laughs> but on the forehead, I had to kiss her on the forehead. Cause the rest was just too hot. And <laughs> I won. I, I had no idea it was being judged for medals. Mm-hmm. I won second best peewee actor, uh, for Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. but the award ceremony was past my bedtime, which was eight o'clock. So I performed, there weren't any stage lights. We performed in a field while the sun was going down. And if you, if your show was coming up after the sun went down too bad, you know, uh, but dad, bring a flashlight. Yeah. Yeah. Please. <laughs> my, my Ann Esther from true Pennsylvania was there and she received my award, uh, in my stead and gave it to me the next day. And I always wondered who was the guy who came in First place, mm-hmm. Pee Wee actor. You know, who did I lose to? That's that's why I always haunted me. But that was my first play. Oh, so I did park plays all mm. the way up until junior, till I was a junior. And as a, I did Case for Two Detectives when I was 14, and we won our district. And so our prize was we got to do Case for our all the people who won in their districts performed at the Dallas Theater Center and was going to be reviewed by the morning papers. It was the first time we really had reviewers. And Mm -hmm. so I did my role in Case for Two Detectives. And the review said that in my dual roles, I was pure pork. And I remember I asked my mother what that meant, that I was pure pork. I was about to ask you that myself. (laughs) And she says, honey, it means you were a ham. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, at, at the age of 14, I don't know if they expected Stanislavski at that time, but I was, yeah. I guess, a ham at that point. We did not win mm-hmm. at the Dallas Theater Center. But my first, my first professional job was at the Equity Theater, Theater 3. And Jack Alder, head of the company, asked if I wanted to be in the musical Young Abe Lincoln. Mm. I think this summer between my sophomore and junior year, and I did that. And back then you could do three plays like that. And then you automatically joined equity. Okay. So this was a huge deal getting this first play at an equity theater company. And I told Jack getting an equity card was very important. And I did not realize how important it would be because my teacher in college, my 
drama teacher hated me and uh, blackballed me from really getting cast in any of the shows at SMU. So when I was in my junior and senior year, I did plays at Theater 3 and got my equity card and started working professionally. Mm -hmm. And uh, my teacher really hated that. (laughs) Super hated that. (laughs) So the theater scene in Dallas was very good to me at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny you mention, you know, Hansel and Gretel being your first one, because I, I have a very special connection to a version of that play, like a children's theater version, because <laughs> uh, that's where I actually I met my wife in college. Um, I was the I was the lowly stage manager and she was, uh, I believe, in this part might not go on live these days, but she was Lydia the Gypsy, who Hansel and Gretel met on their way to the witch's castle. Oh, my gosh. So so that was a kind of that's notorious, a techie and an actress kind of getting together. That's notorious. Mm-hmm. You know, that that happens a lot now. When, when I was in uh, majoring in theater in college, like I would act a semester and then they try and push me into the tech role for a semester because I'm really good with computers, but I really enjoyed being on the stage. So it was this constant struggle. One of the keys for me when I was in, in high school is that Mary Curtis was our drama teacher. And, and I was very involved in the drama program in high school because it was one of the few things I could do. I could do debate and I could do drama, mm-hmm. but I wasn't allowed to do sports at the time because I was ill. Mm. I was ill for like three years. And uh, it forced me into a, a drama program. And our teacher, Mary Curtis, was very big at getting some of the major actors and directors that were in Dallas at the time to direct the high school plays. And David Nichols was a big star in Dallas at the time. Mm -hmm. And he came in and directed me when I was 15 at Kimball High School playing Arpe Gong in The Miser. So I was playing the lead. (laughs) So I'm playing a 60, 70-year-old man at the age of 15. And I realized acting's a lot like sports in a way. Like, were you a sports guy at all? I was not. I actually, I tried to be a sports guy to impress my stepfather, but I screwed up my knee like two weeks into practice. Let's see if you know the answer to this question. In baseball and softball, uh, who's the best hitter on the team usually? When, when When you are in elementary, junior high and high school. Ah, gosh, would it be like, it wouldn't be the pitcher. It's the pitcher. It's oh, is it the, the pitcher? pitcher. <laughs> it's the pitcher. I'm not a sports guy. <laughs> when when you are young playing, you know those sports. The pitcher is the guy. He's usually certainly one of the best fielders, the most coordinated, mm-hmm. and usually the best hitter. And all that begins to change in high school as the pitchers get more and more serious and take less and less batting practice. And then you have mm-hmm. third baseman, shortstop, first baseman, fielders are all great hitters, and the pitcher is not. Then you get into Major League Baseball and the pitchers can't hit at all. Everyone just keeps specializing more and more. Yeah, when you you start out that way. Mm -hmm. And when you are in theater, when you are in junior high and high school, we're talking 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, usually Mm -hmm. the best actor in the school plays the old men. (laughs) You know, they played the old men, so they they gray their hair with streaks and tips. Mm-hmm. Back then I had hair. <laughs> and they walk with a limp, and they try to sound like Walter Brennan. 
What is going on here? And and so so all of these roles, I, I played stage manager in our town in high school, which is an older man. I played Henry Drummond in Gone with the Wind, who's an old man, mm-hmm. Arpe Gong. So always when I'm in high school, I was <laughs> What is going on here? I was doing all this stuff with, with my hair all streaked with gray. It's horrible. And then, of course, you get yeah. to college, and that don't happen anymore. When you mm-hmm. get into college, they sometimes have faculty members playing the old men, and you're always trying to play young people. So that's yeah. the way it was. When I was 15, our teacher, Mary Curtis, got David Nichols, big star in Dallas, to direct The Miser, is our pick on. And David Nichols taught me all about comic timing and technique, which I'd never heard about. And I don't know if I know all about it, but for a <laughs> 15-year-old at the time, he says comedy is all about the pause, the pacing, specificity, and 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 keeping it moving forward. And what, 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 you know, and keeping it moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that is why... As I moved forward into college, I had more innate comic ability than some of my counterparts because of all the work David Nichols did with me. I only really knew David four times in my life. The first time I knew him was when he directed me when I was 15. Mm -hmm. The second time I ran into David Nichols was... I worked with his brother, Chris Nichols, at SMU, and he said, when you go to Los Angeles, here's David's phone number. Give him a call. So the first day I went to Los Angeles, I called David Nichols on the phone, and he said, well, I'm working now on this movie. Why don't you come and have lunch with me? (laughs) The movie he was working on, he was in the art department of New York, New York, working in the art department, Mm -hmm. not as an actor, art department. For that lunch with David, I sat with Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, David Nichols, and myself. My first day. Yeah, I was going to say, not a lot of people get that kind of group together the first step first step off the bus into Los Angeles. And the whole time we're having lunch, De Niro is eating lunch, and he's like looking at me like, why is this guy at the table? <laughs> and he's giving me that look, you know, that, mm, mm, why is this guy here? And he's mm-hmm. talking to Martin Scorsese, and then, Given me the look, you know, I was going like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, that was the second time I met David Nichols. The third time I met David Nichols was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, Tennessee. And I got married to my girlfriend, Anne, who was working in Alaska. She came out and we got married by the Justice of the Peace. Mm-hmm. And we came back to our hotel, and David Nichols was in the bar third time I saw him in my life. Wow. And we had a drink together in honor of our marriage. <laughs> and the fourth time I saw David Nichols, the last time I saw David Nichols in my life, I was shooting Groundhog Day. First day, first scene up was me and Bill Murray in the street. And they had 500 of the townspeople out there. And I, of course, was scared as a jackrabbit. It was like 6.30 in the morning. We're starting to do the, oh, Phil, Phil. That's <laughs> that whole scene in the beginning. Phil. Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Uh, how you doing? And I look out at the crowd of like 500 people, and there on the front row of the crowd, David Nichols, 
who was working at the art department on that movie. And he looked at me and he gives me the thumbs up. And suddenly my fear went down and I thought, let's get it. It's just like Moliere and the miser. It's just like the ham, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, he's pure pork. Let's go out there and give him Ned Ryerson. So those are the four yeah. times I met David Nichols. It's kind of funny that, you know, the first time you met him was when you were first getting started. And then the second time you met him, what I, I would say be what 90% of people at least initially knew you for. Funny that he he, he was there at those two touch tones. Crit sure. Critical, critical moments in my life. And so I owe yes. so much to David, who passed away during the pandemic. But I got to say, mm. great man, great actor, great artist. And uh, he meant a lot to me. So you said you went to a Jefferson Davis Elementary School. The elementary school I went to, uh, my first grade teacher, Miss Rupert, definitely had a profound effect on how weird I ended up being growing up. So who were the good teachers or, you know, bad teachers or bullies at Jefferson, Jefferson Davis that shaped Stephen Tobosky? Uh, first grade teacher, Maddie Lee Smith. Mm -hmm. I still love her to this day. She, and partly because she respected me, because I didn't know this, but my father, whenever he would go to work, he was a family doctor, he would teach me a letter of the alphabet. And when he went to work and when I came home, when he came home that day, mm -hmm. this is before I went to school, I had to come up with five words that use that letter, hmm. A for apple, you know, and I'd have to write it out for him on this little chalkboard he gave me. So by the time I went to first grade, I could kind of read and I had a pretty good vocabulary. And Maddie Lee Smith really appreciated me, was kind to me, was nice to me. She was definitely a good teacher. The only thing I went amiss in her class was I peed in my pants Ooh. because I was embarrassed to ask the teacher if I could go to the bathroom, which is at the back of the school, the schoolroom, not in the hallway. You didn't leave, but it was at the back. Yeah. And I, I was just embarrassed to raise my hand and said I, I had to go uh, use the toilet. I was afraid of the Snickers and I ended up peeing in my pants. So that was- Which that probably was, made way more Snickers than it would have been just to be like, hey, can I go? I, I don't really remember the fallout from that except my own mm -hmm. humiliation, how mom had to come to school with another pair of pants. Yeah. My mom, you know, they were we were right down the block. Mm -hmm. Second grade teacher was Miss Cooper. And she was the opposite of Maddie Lee Smith. She picked on me. And um, she, she was, I felt she singled me out unfairly. She thought the boys were ruckus, you know, and the girls were well behaved. And so she kind mm -hmm. of had it out for me. And we, we had to have this assignment in Miss Cooper's class. For the first time ever, we had to read books on our own. Mm -hmm. And we had like, four books that we had to read at our own pace through the course of the year. And the first book was Bucky Beaver Goes to New York. And Bucky Beaver Goes, this book, I'm saying was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just guessing, it was like over 200 pages long. I mean, it mm -hmm. made Tip and Mitten and uh, Jack and Janet, all those little books you read in first grade, like nothing. This yeah. was like a tome. It was war and peace. 
You wouldn't expect Bucky Beaver to be that complex. You weren't. Now, I was not paying attention to the assignment when Miss Cooper said she wanted us to take the books home and read them. I I didn't know that she meant at our own pace and come back and say, well, I read the first five pages, I read the first chapter, whatever. I thought she meant we had to read the entire book overnight. Mm. It's like 240 pages. I couldn't believe this. I was horrified by this. I asked my brother, Paul, is this thing possible? My brother was older and wiser than me. He was at this point second grade. So I was like, what, seven, something like that, seven or so. And so Paul was like 11. And he was saying, yes, in college, you sometimes have to read an entire book overnight. I thought, well, this is higher education. (laughs) So I read Bucky Beaver. I did not eat dinner. I sat and I read Bucky Beaver. I woke up in the middle of the night and kept reading Bucky Beaver. (laughs) I hated Bucky Beaver. I got up early before the sun rose and kept reading Bucky Beaver. I have no comprehension of what Bucky Beaver was about, except he talked to a train conductor. He wore a vest. And, (laughs) and, you know, I'm going like, you know, beavers don't like to travel on the train and they don't talk. I don't get what this story is about. And I finally, on the way to Jeff Davis, got to the end of Bucky Beaver, the end. Mm -hmm. And so I get into class exhausted, horrified. And Miss Cooper says, so how many of you read your books uh, last night? Everybody raised their hand. So how many of you read the first chapter of your book? And I thought, well, this is weird. I mean, if we have to read the entire book, of course, we'll start with the first chapter. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody raised their hand. How many of you read the second chapter? Most everybody raised their hand. I'm going, oh. How many read the third chapter? And now there's like a dozen people raising their hands, including me. And I'm going like, "Uh uh-oh, I have misunderstood this assignment. (laughs) And then she says, how many of you have read the fourth chapter? Now it's only the four smart girls in class and me raising Mm -hmm. our hands. How many of you read more than four chapters? Now it was just the girl who I loved in second grade, Claire Richards, me, uh, a very tall girl on the back row. Uh, I think her name was Amy. The three of us raised their hand. And so the class was ooing and aahing, and they said, Claire, how much did you re- read? She says, I read the first five chapters and the beginning of the sixth. And everyone, ooh, <laughs> Then the girl on the back row, and how much did you read? I read uh, four chapters in the beginning of the fifth. Ooh. Stephen, how much did you read? I was ready to be a hero. And I said, Miss Cooper, I read the entire book. And the entire class broke out into laughter. And Miss Cooper, her smile turned into a scowl. And she says, you get up here right now. I will not have a student lying in this class and, and making a joke about an assignment. I will not have that. I said, but, but I, really read, I really read the book. I want you to apologize to this class for lying. Apologize now for lying or you're going to the principal which meant back then a spanking. Mm-hmm. I was about to get capital punishment, you know, in school. Well, cor- corporal, corporal punishment, capitals, <laughs> the death penalty. Well, that's right. Maybe, that's not, it. maybe not the extreme. <laughs> corporal punishment. So I said, uh, I just go, uh, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she goes, stand out in the hall. I will not have you in this classroom. So I stood out in the hall. And Miss Cooper came out after I stood out there for about 10 minutes, humiliated, humiliated. And she said, so did you read the book at all? And I said, yes, yes, ma'am, I did. How much did you read? And I looked into her miserably blank eyes and I said, first chapter. She says, you can go in and sit down and never lie in this class again. So I went back into class and I never opened a book again uh, through grade school. I didn't read anything ever again. That was it for me and reading until pretty much I got to college. I was done reading. And, and, and I just realized the effect bad teachers have on us as well as the good. Yeah, and it's just like you were getting punished for going above and beyond your classmates. She just didn't believe me. But, but you know, the yeah. thing that bothered me, the thing that got me so mad, it was very simple for Miss Cooper, after, instead of accusing me of lying, is to say, what happened in the last chapter? What, what happened? And I could have said, well, Bucky Beaver talks to a conductor and Bucky Beaver says he wants to go back home. And mm-hmm. why didn't Miss Cooper do that? Because she had not read Bucky Beaver Goes to New York and she did not mm-hmm. know the questions to ask or whether I was telling the truth. It was just easier for her to call me a liar. And so she was a bad teacher, I think. And, and I think I lucked out because you know, moving on, I, I left Jeff Davis, they redistrict. And, and so in fifth grade, I went to carpenter school and I got kind of a clean slate. None of the teachers knew me, knew that I was a liar and knew that I was a troublemaker. And so I had great teachers, Miss Middleton, Miss Gardner, Mr. Borders and math. I, I had great, great teachers uh, for the rest of elementary and junior high school. And in high school, I had magnificent teachers. And I just want to have one editorial comment on this. Magnificent teachers in high school. And that was partly because of women's liberation. It did not exist. The only job Mm -hmm. women could have back then was executive secretary, ballerina, cheerleader, or a teacher. A nurse also. They could be a nurse. The rest of the stuff was closed. So every woman with brilliance with ambition, with a desire to reach out and knowledge, ended up becoming a teacher. And they ended Mm -hmm. up becoming elementary, junior, and high school teachers. So when I was in high school, I was taught by Miss Haynes. I was taught by Miss Covert. I was taught by Miss Hoffler. I was taught by Miss Curtis, Miss Judd. I was taught Miss Milky in chemistry. I was taught by these incredibly brilliant women because it was the only place they could go. It was the only job they could have. And, and now uh, those brilliant women, I don't know that they're in the schools anymore. Mm-hmm. I think now that they have a chance to run companies and do whatever they want to do in, in the job force, in the job market, regardless of the pay rate, they're mm-hmm. going to take their chances out in the world against men. They're not teaching in the schools anymore. 
teachers aren't nearly as respected in the schools now as they were back then, at least from my impression. Obviously, I wasn't alive back then, but back then it seemed like, you know, it was they've shuffled the women off into this one particular job, but it was a very well-respected job within the community where now it's most people kind of shit on teachers, you know? Yes. And now it's, it's a part-time job. You work nine months mm-hmm. of the year. You make very little money. Uh, you're looking for a way up and a way out. You, you don't have people who think like, well, I'm going to be a career eighth grade English teacher. You know, this mm-hmm. is where I want to be. But back then we did. We, we, Miss Hoffler in, in German, Miss Hames in algebra, so brilliant and, and such great teachers. You know, I feel blessed to, to have been exposed to them and really great teaching when I was growing up. Just hang tight for one second. I am going to roll an ad from our sponsor uh, because they've been so gracious to sponsor us. And I'll come back with, with Stephen for one or two more questions. Where I'm From is brought to you by Streen Studio. That's S-T-R-E-A-N-N Studio. The web app that puts you in charge of the live show. Stream Studio allows you to take your streaming game to the next level by allowing you to stream to multiple platforms at once. If you want to go to Twitch, if you want to go to YouTube, if you want to go to a website that isn't supported even, you can stream to all of those platforms at once, get feedback from your audience, and most importantly, it puts you in control of the show. Now, Stream Studio has several packages that work for just about any type of broadcaster. From the free plan, where you can stream with a watermark, all the way up to the gold plan, where you can have up to eight guests. You can stream to as many social platforms as you want. You can get a web link to share your show with external audiences. And you can even get an iframe so you can embed your live stream show directly into your website. Hey, I love Stream Studio so much, I'm using it to produce this show. I want to thank Stream Studio for supporting where I'm from. And you can give this fantastic software a spin and support where I'm from at the same time. Just head over to our website at billmeeks.com slash where I'm from and click on the Stream Studio banner so they know we sent you their way. All right, and we're back. I'm actually from uh, Texas myself, Stephen. Uh, but, but I moved away when I was 11, so I never really got sort of a mature perspective on the state. Like, I remember liking it, but I'm not a big fan of where the state sits politically uh, these days. I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what did Texas mean to you as a kid while you were living there? And what does it mean to you now, all these years later, uh, so far removed from it? I loved Texas as a kid. I guess my opinion of it was like Willie Nelson, is that it's so big that there's no horizon. You know, you can go anywhere and do anything in Texas. Sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be an actor. You could be a singer. You could be a scientist. You could be a a baseball player. You could do anything in Texas. Uh, Texas started going downhill for me in the 70s when uh, everybody from the north moved down to Texas uh, because of all of the financial jobs in Texas at the time. It became a big financial center and banks. And so all the Yankees came down to Texas and suddenly like hospitality and rudeness on the road and rudeness on the street became 
mm-hmm. the new Texas. Uh-huh. And Dallas currently still for years has had the worst drivers in America, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like they go so fast and they always are trying to get ahead of you. And I spent mm-hmm. the first 25 years of my life there. And I know there's nothing worth going that fast. You know, it'll still be there. <laughs> uh, but, but I think Dallas, the, the computer explosion was the next one after the financial explosion, mm-hmm. the computer explosion with all the uh, Texas instruments and a lot of computer manufacturing started happening in Texas. So it's, it's moved into a whole new, new direction, mm-hmm. I guess. So there's a lot less unity than when I was a child there. Now it's more who knows what. Yeah. And Austin is still one of the most coolest cities ever. Yeah, super hip. Super hip. I had a a very amazing experience in Austin. I, I had done this movie of me telling my stories uh, called Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. And mm-hmm. in Austin, they had me on one of the morning shows talking about this a radio show. So I had to be at the studio at 6 a.m. And, and this, they were broadcasting from the basement of one of the big legitimate theaters in Austin, right? So it was a regular theater theater. And in the basement, they have all the radio and everything set up. And there was a piano down there. So they said, well, mm-hmm. we'll be ready for you in about 10 minutes. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just wander around. And I went over to the little grand piano and I sat down and I started playing this Schubert Sonata. Uh, Cause I started playing when I was, a young kid, because I was in love with Claire Richards, greatest piano player in the world. I, <laughs> I I took piano my whole life. And even one time when I was working in Salt Lake, I had the chance of playing for Claire Richards. So here I am. Life, it does like this. <laughs> I'm in the basement of a theater in Austin, Texas, playing a Schubert Sonata, getting ready to be interviewed. In the corner of my eye, I see footsteps coming. And somebody sits on the damn piano bench right next to me. And I turn, it's Lyle Lovett. Wow. (laughs) At like 6 a.m. in the morning in the basement of a theater. And he says, I thought I heard some piano playing over here. Wanted to see what was going on. And I go, Lyle Lovett. (laughs) And this is the one thing I want to say about Lyle Lovett. Besides the fact he's a great songwriter. Lyle Lovett got a lot of grief at the time for saying, like, how could he possibly be dating these beautiful women when he is the doggiest looking guy in the world? Let me Mm. say this for a fact. Sitting on a piano bench, Lyle Lovett is one of the most handsome men I have ever seen. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I know the difference between handsome and not. Lyle Lovett is gorgeous. It just maybe the way the light hits him that you would think like he's not to modern taste or whatever. He doesn't look like mm-hmm. George Clooney. He is extraordinarily handsome. And it took 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 me back a little bit going like, oh, my gosh. That's funny because oftentimes you hear, you know, the lighting can make or break like an actress on the stage or whatever. But to have like a no, no, I need a little bit worse lighting just to make myself. (laughs) (laughs) I look great in the dark. Right, right, right. (laughs) Now we're going to play a game I like to call 
hometown trivia, where I'm going to ask you some questions about Dallas, and uh, you'll hopefully have the answer and maybe a little anecdote to go along with it. Okay. What Dallas company invented the microchip in 1958? Texas Instruments, I believe. Texas Instruments, calculator maker, yep. How much did the calculator cost at that time? We had someone come in with a Texas Instrument calculator Mm -hmm. when I was a freshman in college, and they said... You can buy this. How much did a calculator cost? I'd say, I'm going to guess like $300. Yes! $300? 300, like $340. And now they're, they give them away free with free toes. I love this. I got a point for that one too. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, the world's first convenience store, Totem, opened in Dallas in 1927 before becoming a national chain. As uh, the totem chain grew, what did they change their name to? 7-Eleven. Yes, yes, 7-Eleven, where you can get uh, all the nacho cheese you want on your nachos or chili dog. Why did they call it 7-Eleven? That I don't know. Because those were their hours of operation. 7 in the morning to 11 at night. But of course, that all changed when people were selling beer it was like (laughs) let's get over there and get our brew now it's known as the place you can go at any time to get to get some beer and again those wonderful wonderful craftastic nachos but when i was dating beth and and she lived in uh jackson mississippi they were called totes of them what 90s workplace comedy was filmed in dallas hint i'm pretty sure you weren't in it 90s workplace comedy I have no idea. 90s workplace comedy. Uh, it's done by someone you've worked with, though. Uh, the, the writer, director, someone you've worked with. I'll give you that hint. Workplace comedy. Because th- it's tough because in the 90s was when I was busy doing television. Yeah, and there's yeah. kind of a rule that if you do television, you don't see television. Yeah. Well, this is a movie. This is a movie. Oh, that, it's a that movie. Might be, yeah, it's a movie. Oh. 1999 was when it came out. God, 1999 workplace comedy. Would it be nine to five? No, no, no. I'm sorry. It's Office Space by Mike Judge. Oh, God. Who? Yeah, who you worked with on Silicon Valley. I worked with on Silicon Valley and I worked with on Beavis and Butthead. And, and, and Mike Judge was a bass player, rock and roll bass player in Dallas. And so, you know, he was totally freaked out. You know, that I had done rock and roll stuff in Dallas, too. And so we exchanged all of our rock and roll stories. Mike Judge is a hero. He's a fantastic man. Okay, here's one for you. It's a hypothetical. If it was the early 1900s and I was heading to Frogtown to shop, what product might I be looking to purchase? Frogtown? Frogtown? I don't know. Uh, the correct answer is uh, prostitutes or strippers. Uh, you oh, know, but, well, is that Deep Elm then? Is, did that become Deep Elm? It might have, yeah. It might have, yeah. I, I know it was like the early 1900s was when it was really known for that. Yeah, that, that area could have been called uh, Deep Elm back, which it's called today, which it was called when I was a child. It could be there. Nice. Okay, and last but not least, what famous gangsters called Dallas home? No, I used to know this. I don't know. It's Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Dallas was their home base and they would go out and do all their crime and then come back and regroup in Dallas. Here's a Faye Dunaway story. Okay. Yeah, I was doing uh, one of Beth's plays, Miss Firecracker Contest in Buffalo, New York. 
and it was opening night in Buffalo, New York, and the opening night party, and I'm going down the buffet in Buffalo at the Studio Arena Theater, and on the other side of the buffet opposite me is Faye Dunaway. Hmm. And I'm looking at her, and I don't know what to say, and she says across the buffet table, how long do we have to stay here? And I go, what? She says, let's go. Let's leave this place. And I go, well, I'm here with my girlfriend. <laughs> I have to ask Beth first. She says, well, just ask Beth to come with us. Okay. So I go, Beth, Faye Dunaway is down here asking if we could go out and party with her. Can we do that? Can we? And she goes, well, if Faye wants to, we have to. And so that night, Beth and I went out on the town with Faye Dunaway in Buffalo, New York. And I saw the way the queen of show business at the time, royalty, <laughs> was treated in Buffalo. She got free everything. We all got free everything anywhere we went. That was a <laughs> magnificent night. And we, we were out until dawn. Oh. <laughs> I envy that sound effect you just made. I have always wanted to be able to. I can't even roll my tongue properly. It's, it's bad. It's bad. It takes practice. You could do it. <laughs> We've been having a good time here, Stephen. Uh, my last question <clears throat> might be considered a little bit of a bummer, but I was kind of doing the math. And, you know, one of the things that pops into my head when I think about Dallas is one of the biggest historical events that ever happened there, the day Kennedy was shot. It would have timed out. Uh, you would have been, I think, around 12 when it happened. I, everyone. Yeah, I was in seventh grade. Uh, everyone kind of has a story about where they were when that happened. Anyone who was alive anyway. But I was wondering what it was like for you being a local. Like, what was it? What was the impact of that story on your local community? It was well. It's two different things. I heard about the news on the playground. We were all on the playground. One of the kids saying, "You know, Kennedy's been shot. Kennedy's been shot," and everyone was going, "Great, yeah, right." On. You know, they were very happy oh. that Kennedy was shot. Now, I have to say, at this period of time, when I was twelve. I didn't know that meant he was killed. Uh, mm -hmm. Back then, you know, we watched Western movies and people would always get shot in the arm and they were okay or the, shoot the gun out of their hand. It was like, ow, ow. Yeah. You know, we didn't think that somebody was really dead. So a lot of the kids on our playground were of the, the opinion, well, I hope he's dead. <laughs> I, hope, I hope they got him. And I was going like, why? And the reason they used was because he's a nepotist. And I didn't know what that was. It sounded bad. Define that for our listeners, uh, just in case they don't know. What Kennedy always did was, was hire people in his family, mm -hmm. like everybody does, to, to be, you know, Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general. And, yeah. you know, Teddy Kennedy was a senator. And, and so Kennedy would put, members of his family in high places, which, you know, a lot of people do. But we didn't know that. We didn't know what the word meant, but we we were in an extremely right wing. Th that word doesn't really make sense by current standards or whatever. You know, what the area we were in was was very, you would have to say racist. You would have to say it was it was a white flight area. The black people were not allowed to live in Oak Cliff at that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I mean, I don't think there were laws, but they were kept away. Yeah. It, 
and uh, you couldn't be Jewish. There were three Jewish families in Oak Cliff, three, yeah, you know, so everybody thought I was Catholic. You know, if they knew I was <laughs> Jewish, they probably would have crucified me and they would have killed me, burned me, set <laughs> me on fire. You know, it was, and yet yeah. the, there was a lot of lovingness in the neighborhood. Anyway, so we heard the Kennedy was shot. We go up to our seventh grade class. It was Miss Gardner was our teacher. And the principal, Mr. Moffat, came on the air and said, this afternoon, President John F. Kennedy, president of our United States, was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. And we'd like to take a two-minute moment of silence for the president. And it was my first moment of silence that I ever had in my life. I didn't know what a moment of silence was. So he said, we all begin the moment of silence now. Do you know how long two minutes of silence is? And especially if you're a kid, it was like amazing. And some of the kids in our classroom broke down and started crying. I remember I didn't know what to do. So I folded my hands in prayer. I was like one of the three Jewish families there. I didn't know anything about heaven or hell or anything. I remember I just sat there and the prayer I uttered was, I hope he's okay. And then afterwards, the the media, the press, which are dogs, you know, they're terrible. And mm -hmm. they were saying like, the cover of Life magazine, should Dallas even exist? And now I was terrified that they were going to pass some sort of law to destroy our hometown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And the, the, the idea was, let's get rid of Dallas. Let's get rid of it. That's, that's wow. the way we're going to, let's do that. So that was my memory of the Kennedy assassination. Very, 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 uh, uh, I don't mean this in a negative against you way, but like disturbing, like, like, just like, I can't, I can't, I, cause I, you know, I'm a very empathetic person. I put myself in the seat of young Stevie Toblowski. Yeah. It was, it was Crazy. terrible. It was terrible. Uh, the, and it, and I don't think, I don't think the city ever recovered really. Spiritually. You mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it's still one of the biggest like economic centers ever and everything, but spiritually, you don't think it ever recovered. It's still something about, at least for me, going back, there's something there like so much of Dallas has changed. So much of Dallas mm -hmm. is gone. Uh, the freeways, all this kind of stuff. But they still have Lee Harvey Oswald's house. <laughs> it's still there right down from where my father's office was, his first office yeah. by Methodist <laughs> Hospital. And you could go there. Yeah, I, I think they turn it into a tourist thing now. You know, it's one of the things that's, been preserved. And the Texas theater where Officer Tippett was killed was where I used to go every Saturday to watch kid matinees, either the Texas theater wow. or the Wynwood. So I was at one of those two places. It could have happened. You know, the whole shooting could have happened at the Texas theater. Just out of curiosity, like I know sometimes, you know, when something really bad happens someplace you really love, it kind of changes your view of it. Did it change your view of the theater or really Dallas? in general, I've uh, seen the reaction to all that. When it happened when I was a child, it made me feel very defensive uh, for Dallas mm -hmm. because I knew how many wonderful people were in Dallas. Yeah. And I thought, and so I thought, well, this is unfair to judge something by one event, by one horrible person who did this. 
even if it was a conspiracy, which I don't know, which I don't know how that's possible, but I mean, it could. Yeah. I mean, when you take a look at how lax security was back then, mm -hmm. yeah, one guy could do it. But nowadays, you know, the Lakers get more security than <laughs> Kennedy got back then. And, and yeah. so I, I was defensive at first, and now Dallas is such a big cosmopolitan city, such a big center that it's kind of the character of the place is different than it was back then. Yeah. My name's David Byrne, and I made a movie about a bunch of people in Virgil, Texas. David, relax. I was kind of surprised you're credited as a writer on the cult film True Stories, a surreal movie musical helmed by David Byrne from the Talking Heads that's set in Texas in the 1980s when Texas was at the forefront of the microchip revolution. Now, I know this movie because it was one of those in college, everyone gets stoned at like two o'clock in the morning and watch True Stories. Yes. <laughs> I was just kind of curious how you ended up getting involved in the project. I, I know you kind of fell away from it before it came out. Well, fell away and fell back in, back in, in that period of my life, which is the first part of, I guess, the second act of my life. First act of my life was being a student in college. Mm -hmm. And that's when I fell in love with this girl, Beth. I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. And she was an adorable girl, very funny, very quirky sense of humor. And she wanted to be an actress, but she never got cast in anything. You know, she was too much like a child, I guess. I don't know. We ended up going to graduate school together. At this point, I was a star in Dallas. I was the young ingenue at Theater 3. I was playing all the young male leads and getting paid. I had my SAG card already. I had done my first feature film in 1971, and I got my SAG card uh, done in Texas. You know, I probably made $100 a day, something like that terrible, but it was a job. Yeah. And a lot of us kids from SMU didn't have jobs at that point, but Beth couldn't go anywhere. No school wanted her really. And she didn't really have a lot of credits. The only school that would take her was the University of Illinois. So then rather risking us breaking up, I decided I wanted to be with Beth more than anything. And so I went to the University of Illinois with her and we were in the graduate program there. And there was a girl there, Claudia Riley, who was a playwright, the only playwright in the entire University of Illinois program. 35,000 students, one playwright student, Claudia Riley. So Beth <laughs> and I took part in one of her readings. We, we went to one of her readings and Claudia thanked us for coming. And on the way back to our little apartment, Beth was saying that was so brave of her. I said, how? I don't understand how. She says, well, she wrote this play. And I said, well, she's a playwriting student and she's in the class and that was her assignment. I don't see how she and Beth goes, but she was a woman. I, Baby, you know, it's a whole different world now. You know, men are strippers and women are rodeo riders, you know, anything. Well, <laughs> and Beth was saying, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be an actress. Maybe I should be a writer. And I'm thinking like, whatever, you know, you're not going to get a job as a writer. You're not going to get a job as an actress. Neither am I. I'm not going to get a job as an actor. We're probably going to be students forever, and I'll end up being a teacher somewhere. That's what I'll end up being. That was my mindset back then. The first full-length play Beth wrote that next year won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Hello. 
yeah. uh, Crimes of the Heart. It was Beth Henley, mm-hmm. and it was magnificent. Still one of the greatest plays I've ever read in my life. So everybody wanted a piece of Beth. Professionals, they're going like, who is this new young female writer out there, Beth Henley? Mm-hmm. So all these directors, real directors, uh, Jonathan Demi, uh, all, all sorts of people wanted to meet Beth. And so Jonathan, uh, his former wife, Evelyn Purcell, wanted to court Beth to do one of her screenplays. And Beth was working. They all wanted to do the movie version of Crimes of the Heart. But Beth had another screenplay she was working on called Nobody's Fool. Or at that time, it was called The Moon Watcher. So through Evelyn Purcell, she introduced Evelyn to Jonathan, who wanted to direct Crimes of the Heart, Jonathan Demi. So Beth and I were leaving Pilates class one morning back when Pilates wasn't cool. <laughs> we were one of the first people who did Pilates. When we just thought it was a method of torture. You know, we voluntarily did Pilates. And Your Pilates hipsters, you were doing it before it was cool. You got it. And so we were walking <laughs> from Pilates and Jonathan Demi's car pulls up and he rolls down his window. He says, hey, guys. Uh, they're about to screen my latest movie, uh, rough cut of my latest movie at the Academy. Want to come watch it? And we go, sure, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. I used to go to Jonathan's office and play defender. He liked video games. And mm-hmm. so I'd go over to his office in the afternoon and play defender. And I thought this guy is so cool. He has a defender game that he owns. It doesn't even require quarters. You know, you just go in, you play as many times as you want. The thing's falling from space. So anyway, Beth and I went to the, the Academy. First time I went to the Academy Theater, there's 1,900 seats mm-hmm. in the Academy Theater. Red velvet seats, red velvet drapes, huge screen, amazing sound system. In the 1,900 seats, there were about eight people. There were the talking heads. Jonathan, Evelyn, me, Beth. That's eight. (laughs) So I'm saying about that many people in this huge theater. So I think uh, Chris Franz and Tina, they were like at the front of the theater. And I think uh, Jerry was down at the front of the theater too. They were like on the front row or something. And, And Beth and I were sitting in the middle of the theater. And behind us was Evelyn, Jonathan, David Byrne, and I think maybe David's girlfriend at the time, Bonnie. Hmm. I think they were sitting behind us. And that was it. And it was the first time I really experienced the music of the Talking Heads. I didn't know who these guys were. I mean, I was still listening to Elvis. <laughs> Yet, you know, I was way behind the curve. And, and I'm yeah. going like Psycho Killer and, and uh, Life During Wartime. Take me to the river, mm-hmm. and, and all the and it was amazing. Sure, and it still is one of the greatest concert films ever made. If people out there have not seen "Stop Making Sense," you need to see that. So, after that movie, we went out to eat Chinese food, and David was sitting across the ta- David Byrne was sitting across the table from me and Beth, and he was saying, "So, what did you not like about the movie?" I go, "Well, David, I liked it." No, no. Everyone always compliments me. I want to know what you didn't like. I, well, well, David, I liked everything. I really did. And I started talking specifically about what I liked about the movie. And David and I ended up in this discussion for like an hour about each scene of the movie and what we liked and what we didn't like. And then he said, do you have a swimming pool? 
and <laughs> and I I go, well, I'm living, you know, now that Beth's rich, you know, we're living up on the hill with a swimming pool. Yeah, we have a swimming pool. Uh, I'm shooting a video for MTV for Road to Nowhere. Can we use your pool? And I looked at Beth, she looked at me, sure. I mean, we didn't know anything about lawsuits back then or <laughs> lawyers or anything like, just let this group of filmmakers and whoever come up. Yeah, come on up, David. You can yeah. use our pool. Why not? So David came up and if you go on Google now, if YouTube, and if you look up the video of Road to Nowhere, mm -hmm. there is underwater sequences and water sequences in that video that was in our backyard. Wow. So they're shooting all day there. And then I decide, well, people start leaving. And I said, well, David, I'm going to cook up some salmon, barbecue some salmon. And if you want, uh, you want to have some? Sure. That sounds good. So I start cooking up salmon and Beth starts talking to David. And said, well, what are you doing next? And he says, well, I was thinking on working on this project called True Stories. See, when we go on the road, we always stop by and get coffee at 7-Eleven. And they have these magazines there with incredible stories on weekly world news and all this about, you know, uh, Gardner uh, is attacked by a weed whacker from space. You know, and there, there are all these stories that are like true stories, absolutely true, that you mm -hmm. know can't be true. So I wanted to do a movie that had all of these absolutely incredible stories in it that should be true. And Beth said, well, then you should talk to my sweetie because he can see tones. This was something that happened to me when I was a sophomore. It started happening to me, then it still happens to me. But mm -hmm. when I was a sophomore in movement class, this is in college, sophomore. So I'm, um, what, 19, 19 years old? Uh, our movement teacher uh, took us out to a retreat. We were going to do movement exercises out by a lake in Dallas, and there are a lot of those lakes and mosquitoes. And mm -hmm. we all went out there, and the sun was going down, and the whole group sits around the campfire. And the teacher says, we're going to go around in a circle, and I want you, you notice my teacher sounds a lot like David Byrne. <laughs> uh, we're going to go around in a circle and just say the first thing that comes to your mind, the first image that comes to your mind. And at that point, the book, Lord of the Rings, this was, bef was before any of the movies were out or cartoons, mm -hmm. anything. But it was very popular with all the pot smoking kids at our college. You know, anyone who smoked pot also read Lord of the Rings. So it just went hand in hand. Well, the hobbits have those pipes, right? <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> <laughs> and Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so they're going around in a circle and so you know they're about 20 kids in our movement class and so they're going like first thing in their mind so the first kid goes frodo next kid goes gandalf next kid goes hobbit next kid goes hobbit hobbit frodo and they're going around the circle and they get to me and suddenly i hear this tone in my head this sound in my head and I see a relationship of what the tones are. I, I don't know. I just saw the tone in my head. I have no idea what it was. But we got to me and the teacher says, Stephen, uh, your turn. What do you see? And I said, I get that you're not who you say you are, that you have an assumed name and that your real initials are JK or JL. Pause. 
then go to the next person, Gandalf, Gandalf, Weed, Frodo, and around the circle. And we finished that exercise, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go home. The sun was going down. I wasn't going to camp out there. On the way to the car, the teacher came out of the shadows to Stephen. Why did you say that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I just heard this tone, and I saw this color, whatever, in my head. And that's just, you said, say, the first thing that came to your mind. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And he said, because it's true. I do have an assumed name, and my initials are JK, like you said. So, again, how did you know this? And I guess I'm thinking of Miss Cooper. Again, the Cooper sister, I'm just telling the truth. I said, it just, I just saw it. I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, afterwards, I was explaining this all to Beth because she was a year younger than me. She was just a freshman and I was a mighty sophomore. And we were sitting in the car in front of her dorm. And she said, do I make a tone? And I'm thinking like, here's a real opportunity to score. <laughs> and so I said, could I hold your hands? That was scoring for me back then. You know, that was about the extent of it. Could I hold your hands? Yeah. This was the first time <laughs> I held her hands. And I held her hands. And then I hear this thing again. And I see this tone in my head. And I go, yes, you have three tones. Now, women usually have tones. Uh, men usually have tones that are in a high range. And women usually have a tone that's in a low range. But you, and most people have one tone, but you have three tones and they're in the male range, in the high range, and the three tones are in harmony. They make a major third. And I believe the first and third indicate a spiritual uh, compatibility, and the first and fifth indicate a physical compatibility. And she goes, what? <laughs> we are going to make a fortune. Look, I don't know what you said. I don't care what you said. We're going to go back to the school. I will get students. I will bring students to you. We could charge them a quarter. We could charge them a dollar. Just hold their hands. Say that. Say whatever you say about the tone and the male range and the female range and the major third, whatever that was, whatever that will save the money and, and we'll go into business together. And that we kept this jar of money that I made from reading people's tones and we did this for quite quite a while. It was a successful enterprise. And I told that story to David Byrne. And mm -hmm. later, David asked uh, Beth if she would write the screenplay of True Stories. So she went over to David's house and came back and said, I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't understand David at all. Uh, but I said he should call you because you're good with stories and structure. You should you should maybe. So David called me and said, could you come over? I went over and he, ex he had all these pictures drawn on the wall. He's a very good artist. David is an excellent graphic artist. So he had all these pictures, hundred of them on his wall, taped to his wall. He said, can you do anything with these pictures? So I looked at the pictures for one of the longest two hours of my life with David standing right next to me, and I just kind of took notes, and I said, well, this is what I'll do. I will go home tonight. I will try to come up with a story. If I do, I'll give it to you. Uh, you can hire me or not hire me. Use the story, whatever you want to do. 
So I went home that night. I came up with a story, a cast of characters, an outline, and wrote like 30 pages Mm -hmm. of a screenplay. Gave it to David Byrne, and he said, I'd like to hire you and Beth to write the screenplay of True Stories. So Beth and I, we had 19 days to do it. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with writing, that isn't a lot of time. So No, I, I can barely get an outline put together in 19 days. 19 days to do an entire screenplay. But we did it. Yeah. We wrote day and night. We did it. We got it. We turned it in. And then we heard nothing from David for about a calendar year. Like nothing. Mm-hmm. He didn't come by the house. He didn't call. He didn't do anything. And one day I'm driving around up in the Hollywood Hills where David lives also. And I'm at a stop sign. And then there's a... I look over and it's David Byrne on a bicycle, <laughs> like next to me. And he's going like, can you roll down the window? He goes, sorry for not being in touch. Uh, we went on the road and I was busy with true stories and I rewrote a lot of what you did, but are you going to be home later today? I want you to hear something. And I go, sure, David. Uh, so <laughs> I went back over to the house and David came over with his guitar and he said, from your story, I wrote this song and I want you to hear it. And David sat in my living room with his guitar and played Radiohead and sang Radiohead, picking up something good, Radiohead. And so he wrote that song based on my experience. That's incredible. So in a way, that was my entree to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and roll, <laughs> and and the English band on a Friday, that mm-hmm. was their name on a Friday. Didn't like their title, and they loved the movie True Stories, and they loved the song Radiohead, and so they changed their name to Radiohead. So the band Radiohead got their name from the movie True Stories and the song True Stories, and that came from my story of me and hearing tones. Did they at least send you a free copy of the album, or no? No, <laughs> no I don't think I don't see. We all are dealing with incomplete information. So I don't think the band Radiohead <clears throat> knew anything about it, except yeah. that Radiohead was a song in True Stories. It's such a great song. It w- it's mm-hmm. like one of the happiest moments of my life when David played that in the living room. That mm-hmm. and David and I traveling around Texas together, looking at locations, and David meeting my mother. That was one <laughs> of the funniest things in the world. So, David, uh, we, what would, would you like anything to drink? We have Coke. We have Diet Coke. We have Dr. Pepper. We have Sprite. We have Pepsi. We have water. We have a beer. Uh, Mrs. Tobolowski, I think just uh, water would be fine. Okay, David. I'll get, and would you like ice in that water? Or would you want it cold, refrigerated water? Uh, just regular tap water would be fine, Mrs. Tobolowski. Hey, so, David, what do you do? Well, Mrs. Tobolowski, I'm a rock and roll star, and we play all over the world. Oh, and you make a living at that? So far, ma'am, so far. The meeting <laughs> between my mother and David Byrne was absolutely hysterical. No one would believe it. It was fabulous. I can imagine. It just sounds so surreal. Um, surreal. It, he, he's one of those guys that's like, he is so perfectly normal that he's weird like it but it's a very entertaining sort of it kind of draws you in you know it's like he plays everything very straight but it's just 
just a little bit off, just a little bit off. And right. that's what I love about him. Yes, yes. And, and, and his songs are so, so good. One more quick game. And yep. it's called, and I, I only want to play it just because you're the only one I could ever play it with. And it's called Have, Have You Ever Played? played? Uh, you're such a wonderful character actor and have had so many various roles over the years. I'm going to name a profession or a type of character. And you tell me if you've ever played someone uh, that fits that profile. Okay. Okay, first up, a fireman. No. A serial killer. Yes. I I was uh, uh, on, on uh, picket fences. Uh, Kurtwood mm-hmm. Smith and I were a gay couple, but, but no one knew not only we were gay, but we were gay serial killers. So we were huh. we were dating women. We'd take them back. Then the two of us would kill would kill the women. So that was what was going on behind those picket fences. They always said. <laughs> yes. Okay, a children's TV show host. Okay, this is this stretches your rules, but yes, well, the first one of the first jobs I ever got was in Dallas, Texas. And for $25 an episode, I was the host of an educational show on KERA, which was the the educational channel at the time. And I did like 50 episodes where I was the host of this show. We did everything from music to Shakespeare to poetry to, and I was the host. I didn't even know how difficult what I was doing was. And we did 50. And Beth's little sister, K.O., I remember the first time she saw me in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, my God, you're the host of the show. So, you know, they knew me from when I was the bargain basement host of this children's TV show. Okay, a train conductor. No. Florence. Yes. And it was uh, the secret applied dating. I played a florist and I was selling the people uh, a plant that I said had kind of special properties if they wanted to fall in love. Kind of like a rom-com sort of thing. Sort of a rom-com kind of thing. Like a little movie. movie. Um, Vampire. I don't think so. I don't think I've ever played a vampire. Casting directors, if you need a vampire, Steven, Steven's right here waiting for it. It's it's his last one for like the E got V, which the V is the vampire. Um, okay, the president. President of the United States. No. 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 And last but not least, a trickster or a trickster god type character, like some sort of, like think Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream, that sort of thing. Well, I played Oberon. I mean, does that count? I played Oberon like in Midsummer Night's Dream like two, three times. So I. I, That counts. If that counts, I, I have played a sort of a trickster superhero kind of character. And uh, this one, I'm going to not ask you. I'm going to tell you just because I thought it was really funny. You've played a calculator. <laughs> I have played a calculator. Yes. <laughs> Brave little toaster. I played a cal. In fact, you know, people always come up to me in the grocery stores and they go, were you Ned Ryerson? Or they go like, were you Stu Beggs from Californication? The best one I ever got. I was in line for a movie, going into a movie, and they turned around. Were you the calculator in the little toaster goes to Mars? And I go, <laughs> yes, I was. The, they heard my voice and they go, you were the calculator. 
I, I'd imagine being such a accomplished character actor like you, every character you've ever played is probably somebody's favorite, right? <laughs> Somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere. All right, Stephen. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can people uh, follow along with what you do besides like every project known to man? I live here in Los Angeles. Do you have any live shows in Los Angeles coming out? Uh, the, coming up, I'd love to come this out. This is see good it. to know that you're out here. So I'll let you know because someone had contacted me about doing some stories live recently, but I just had this huge mm-hmm. spate of work the last two months out of town. So that kind of went along the yeah. wayside. But I'll let you know when I'm going to. I've, I've done several live shows of my stories out here before. Did the Spurball Center in different places. Oh, you know, I'm I'm going to do, I'm going to do one of my stories. Uh, it's not my dog. I'll have to, it's one of the little townships out there. But I'll, I'll let you know because that'll be really good. And but but where people can he- hear more about me is, I have my podcast where I tell stories, and it's called The Tobolowski Files. And so if people just go to tobolowskifiles.com, and if you just type it in Google, it'll spell it right, you could go there, and there are 99 stories that ended up on NPR and PRI radio stations uh, were part of my books. You know, around I have a couple books of stories, uh, The Dangerous Animals Club, and My Adventures with God, uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Those are both books of my true stories, which you'll enjoy. Uh, so those are, and at tobolowskifiles.com, it's free. There's no charge, no paywall. We just wanted to do it that way. So these are all 50-minute stories you could listen and enjoy while you're working out or walking the dog. You could consider the, the podcast you just finished listening to a sampler platter. For the sample, All right. Well, we want to thank you uh, so much for joining us. And to everyone watching out there, if you like the show, uh, please consider going to Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast and leaving us an honest review to help get the word out about where I'm from. You'll also find all the links to the show, where you can find it, uh, how to contact me if you want to tell me about where you're from at BillMeeks.com slash where I'm from, all one word. And now we usually uh, record the live show over on Twitch at twitch.tv slash BillMeeks. And if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, if you have a story you want to share, if you want to respond to Stephen's stories about Dallas, uh, just shoot me an email, bill at billmeeks.com. Well, that does it for this week. Uh, Join us next time when I talk to somebody else about where they're from. See you soon.